Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Well, uh, hello and welcome to uh, to y'all. And um, whether you're joining us live here um, in the Zoom call or um, on the live stream, or if you're going to listen later um, on our podcast, we uh, welcome you uh, warmly to this Dundee University Free Speech Society event. And where we, as a society, aim to give a voice to all sides of a discussion um, and offer a platform for free expression um, here in our university. Uh, this week, we're delighted to have um, Alex O'Connor with us, um, the man behind the well-known YouTube channel um, Cosmic Skeptic. So Alex has amassed over 400,000 subscribers on his main YouTube channel, um, which I think is a testament to both uh, the quality of his videos and the appetite in our world for fair dialogue and discussion surrounding the big questions of life and philosophy and religion. And as well as his YouTube channel, Alex is also studying at Oxford where he is um, reading philosophy and theology. Um, this evening, Alex will be talking to us about skepticism and religion as our world is increasingly explicable through science alone, uh, is religion still relevant in our world? So Alex will give us a talk to start with, and then we'll have time for a Q&A at the end where you can um, ask any of the questions that you have um, through the Q&A function that you'll find um, at the bottom of your screen, uh, hopefully. Um, so Alex, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. Um, and if you're happy to get going, um, I think we can, we can make a start. So over to you, Alex. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you for what was a very charitable introduction, I promise to anybody listening that I didn't pay him to say such nice things about me. Um, it's always, it's always nice. It, it, it's, it's good to be kind of on, on my home turf. I, I enjoy giving addresses to university and other types of groups, but usually I do them in person and they're more fun when you can all be in the same room, of course, and go to the bar afterwards. Uh, however, I feel a bit more at home simply talking to a camera since that's what I do most of the time for anybody who doesn't know. Um, that's that's basically my job i'm i'm a youtuber and uh, as matthew says i talk about religion and skepticism but more recently i've been talking about the issue of animal rights as well which i see as an extension of skepticism but perhaps i can mention that uh presently or shortly i think that there's this interesting link that people have kind of drawn between the terms skepticism and religion they're often kind of thrown into the same basket as if they address the same topic skepticism it's a very broad approach to uh, thinking about philosophical or political issues. Skepticism is just an advocacy for a continual process of questioning the things that we uh, think are true and making sure that we try our best to find those things that are worth questioning. Because a lot of people like to say that they question their beliefs and they're usually thinking maybe about religion, maybe thinking about their politics. There are oftentimes things that people miss. Like when was the last time you had skepticism about your diet? When was the last time you had some skepticism about your news sources and, and whether or not they're reliable? When was the last time that you had skepticism about whether the job that you're currently in is the right one, even if it feels like it might be? If you reevaluated your life course and seen where it's going? Skepticism is a much broader uh, approach to, to life and thinking than just within the confines of religion. But it has a strange connection to religion because of the fact that so many people apply this process of skepticism. And one of the beliefs that perhaps they hold quite dearly is the belief in the existence of a God or the truth of a religion. And upon questioning it, they find that 
the ground they thought it stood upon has essentially turned to sand and they can no longer grant assent to these doctrines. Um, so I suppose I can talk a little bit about why it is that I, in applying this process of skepticism to religion, became an atheist, but why that certainly doesn't rule out the possibility of religion's truth. I mean, skepticism, as I say, is a method. It's not an end. It's not a consequence. And so it's very possible to be a perfectly good skeptic who ends up with the same beliefs that he started with or she started with. It's very unlikely that this would happen if done correctly, but if it just so happened that all of the beliefs that you hold are in fact true and accurate and appropriate, or at least the ones that you can meaningfully apply skepticism to, if you apply that process of skepticism and find that actually it all checks out, you can still call yourself a skeptic despite you know, not um, have, having actually changed your mind. So a lot of people think that skeptic is a synonym for atheist, certainly in the sphere of philosophy of religion. It's very rarely that you'll see a Christian call themselves a skeptic. But I think that's just because of the connotations that have been placed upon the word by atheists who seem to imply that if you're a skeptic, you must come out as an atheist. I don't think that's true. So I want to be clear that whilst I advocate for skepticism and my skepticism has led me to a kind of reluctant atheism, that isn't to say so much that I advocate atheism. That's not exactly what I'm doing. That's not how I characterize it, because I'd be happy to drop atheism in a moment if a valid sound argument was proposed that made me believe that God existed. Um, one of the most important questions that's often brought up on this topic of religion and skepticism towards religion is this question of scientific progress that was mentioned in the introduction, was also mentioned on the event page. Is it true that since we're living in a world that continually seems to be explaining more and more things through the scientific method, that the need for religion has disappeared? I'm not sure this is entirely true. Uh, I think that what you can say is that scientific method and um, the progress of scientific discovery has certainly eliminated certain specific claims. For example, if you're somebody who is a seven-day creationist who believes in the literal existence of Noah's Ark, I think that geology and anthropology can show that this is false. We can quite confidently say that in applying skepticism to these kinds of beliefs, the scientific method has led us to conclude that these things are false. But the nature of religion and what makes it so great if you ask its adherents, but also so um, elusive if you ask its critics, is that it necessitates in many cases, at least in its popular forms of Christianity and other forms of monotheism, it necessitates faith. It necessitates reaching out in the dark and seeing what you can grab. And there's this essence of religion that says that you must believe before seeing. Now, we may say that this is at odds with the um, scientific spirit. We may say that, although, you know, strictly speaking, if they do operate in completely different spheres, science can't contradict religion. But we could say that the implicit notion that there are such things that can be known or should be known before any proof has been provided um, may be said to be at odds with the scientific method. We may, we may think that if we call ourselves scientists, we're essentially granting assent implicitly to a worldview that says that the only form of knowledge that's worth having is that which can be empirically verifiable. But we should be careful because all kinds of non-empirical, unprovable beliefs are held by secular people and atheists too, included. Uh, for instance, a belief in induction, that induction is an accurate way to describe the world. Um, the belief in the external world, the belief in the existence of other minds, that other people actually exist. None of these things can, philosophically speaking or empirically speaking, be proven. And yet we consider them to be things that we're justified in believing. I can never prove 
that any of you exist. And yet we would probably agree that I'm justified in believing that you do. And so this raises the question that maybe there are such things that can be known um, without, that, that seem to kind of contradict this scientific, eth uh, scientific ethic that some people describe as scientism, which is the belief that only through science can we gain knowledge. As long as we reject that thesis, as long as we say that there are certain things that can be known outside of the scientific method, which I think is plainly true, then religion at least has a foothold. And so the question then becomes, what, what do we end up with when we actually kind of put these things side by side? Well, as I say, I think we can reject certain religious views. And I think the more serious or more fundamental the specific religious views that we can contest with the process of science, the more serious a problem science will pose for religion. For example, one of the most famous um, progressions in science that was particularly troubling for religion was the advent of uh, bi uh, evolutionary biology. Once it was pretty much agreed upon that all species on earth originated from a common ancestor, uh, now thought to be pretty much beginning at the beginning of the earth. So something like four to four and a half billion years ago. Um, once that was accepted, it posed a large problem for many Christians, but it's perfectly possible for a Christian today to accept evolution. And in fact, most of them do, at least those whose opinions are worth having tend to do so. And so the question remains, it, it, can we say that evolution, um, which you know is often used as kind of the parad paradigmatic example of science outdoing religion, can we really say that it poses a problem that can't be avoided or can't be reconciled by the Christian just saying, well, yeah, I may have had it wrong before, but this doesn't affect my overall view that Christianity is true. I just misunderstood you know, the process by which the world came about. Well, I think there's one particularly good argument that can be used in this vein, and that's this. On, on the understanding of natural selection and evolution and the fact that the, the, the homo, uh, homo sapiens species arose um, from other apish ancestors, but also there were other species of human being on planet Earth at the same time as Homo sapiens were before they all died out. There is an interesting question that we need to ask. Quite clearly, at least for um, Christianity and certainly other monotheisms as well, human beings have a very special spot in theology, right? God particularly cares about human beings. Nobody really thinks that, you know, the mole or the pig or the cow is going to be saved and inherit eternal life and is a kind of moral agent and is made in the image of God in the same way that human beings are. But there's a really difficult question that needs to be answered now, which is, which is this. At what point along this evolutionary trajectory did God begin kind of caring specifically about this species? Because if it were the case that humans popped into existence, it's very easy for God to say, this is my species. These are the ones who are made in my image. These are the ones who will inherit eternal life. But the process of evolution is so unimaginably gradual that there's never one point at which one species turns into another. An analogy often uh, used by Richard Dawkins has been to compare this to the process of aging. There's no point at which a middle-aged person becomes elderly. There's no, there's no day where someone goes to sleep middle-aged and wakes up elderly. It doesn't work like that. But very clearly, we have these distinctions between people who are middle-aged and people who are elderly. We know that someone who is 90 years old is elderly. Um, we know that someone who is half their age is going to be middle-aged. But we don't know where that point of transition occurs. Now, this isn't a problem because, you know, we, we only talk about age very vaguely anyway. But imagine it were the case that somebody said, has some kind of rule that said they're going to take special consideration of the elderly. 
and that this rule was of the most significant, uh, the, the most important cosmic significance, you'd quite rightly want to ask, well, how is it that you're going to judge when somebody becomes elderly and is kind of embraced into that, um, into that worldview? Now, we can do this arbitrarily, as we do with things like pensions or, um, you know, who can get a free bus ticket or whatever. We just kind of pick an age and say, I guess, after this point, we'll consider you elderly. But we're asking a more ontological question. The, the analogy here is, when is it that these non-human apish ancestors became human? Right? There was no one non-human that gave birth to a human. Didn't work like that. If you went back through the evolutionary chain, every single uh, I, I should say every single ape's parent would be almost identical to their children, right? And you could go back and back and back. It's only when you look along the entire chain that you see this gradual change. The question then becomes, at what point did God start caring? Right? Because you either have to say that God kind of arbitrarily picks a point at which he says, okay, now, now I care about these species, everybody born after this particular ancestor is now embraced into the fold of care. You're going to inherit eternal life, but you who were born a day earlier, sorry, you, you, you don't make it. This seems to me not only arbitrary, but also wicked and cruel. Why should it be the case that two beings who are identical in nature, identical in nature, one of them is going to inherit eternal life and has the ability to be salvaged of all their sin and their guilt, but this one does not. It's not available to them. They're consigned with the pigs and the cows and the chicken and the sheep. Um, to be excluded from this process. That's a very serious question that religion has to answer. Now, what they can do is they can say something like, well, look, the story of Adam and Eve, the original, um, the, the original human beings, the, the Fonzet Origo of the human as moral agent made in the image of God was essentially an arbitrary decision that was made by God. He just kind of breathed life, or that is to say breathed human life or human significance into a particular um, organism at a point along the evolutionary chain. But to me, this seems very ad hoc. And we have to ask ourselves a simple question, which is this. If we assume an atheistic worldview, what would we expect to see? And if we assume a Christian worldview or another religious worldview, what would we expect to see? Well, if we assume an atheistic worldview, we'd probably expect to see that there isn't an obvious purpose to life, that no species is kind of particularly objectively better or worse or or whatever, it all, just, all seems kind of random. It's based on kind of random mutations and a struggle for survival such that there's no point at which a new species just pops into existence. It's all fairly gradual. And this is, this is what we observe in nature. If we assume Christianity, a worldview which doesn't just say that human beings were chosen to become God's most significant ape, but that they were made to be so, that from the very first they were intended, and in fact the whole point of creation more or less, was to bring into existence these human beings who could then enter into a free relationship with God, we have to ask ourselves the question of why it would be done through these means, in a way that necessitates such brutality and violence, and the impossibility of redemption for people who just so happen to have been born before the point at which God arbitrarily cuts off the line and says, now you're human. That's a question that religion needs to answer. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there is no answer to this question. There may well be, but if there is, I'm yet to hear it. And this is what skepticism is to me. It's a case of withholding assent from doctrines that we're not justified in believing until we're provided with some justification. So if somebody were to come along and give me a biblically accurate, theologically thorough explanation of when God starts caring about human beings, specifically 
then I would perfectly happily accept it. But until that comes along, skepticism demands of me that I refuse to say that this is uh, a justifiable thing to think or to believe. Um, so that's just one example of how skepticism can be applied to the conflict or supposed conflict between science and religion, or at least maybe it would be better characterized as how skepticism can bring about an awareness of how science may conflict with religion, but we shouldn't fall into the temptation to say something like science has buried God. That's more of an active claim, right? Like if I were to say the nature of evolution proves there is no God, I've adopted for myself a burden of proof. I'm making a very heavy claim there, and I'd better have a good justification for it. Whereas if I just say the process of science seems to undercut some of the claims being made by religious people, and until they can say how that can be rectified, I'm not going to agree with them, that's fair enough. There's not more I need to do there. The, the burden of proof then lies solely with the religious actor. So if we're going to be intellectually honest and consistent and have a sense of humility that I think skepticism requires, then we shouldn't be saying things like science is buried God. You know, science proves that God doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. We need to be much more careful and say that science is a method not a thing. It's not a thing you can touch and feel. It's a method. So the method of science has brought about certain conclusions which seem to conflict with certain uh, precepts of religious theology. We have to be very careful about how we frame it. Otherwise, you're just going to be caught out in the conversation by the intelligent Christian who knows that you're biting off more than you can chew. But it's not just the scientific arguments that should give us pause for thought when it comes to religion. I think that one of the most compelling um, arguments against the existence of God is the problem of evil and suffering. The problem is that it's difficult to bring this up without, without sounding unoriginal and cliche because yeah, of course the atheist brings up the problem of evil as a problem for God. It's like the first thing that people think about when they start uh, taking philosophy seriously and the philosophy of religion, they think, well, look, if God exists and he's perfectly loving, how could he allow all of this suffering? It's worth bearing in mind that there are a multitude of religious responses to the problem of evil. And again, skepticism requires that we take them very seriously and only conclude that the problem of evil is really a problem once we fully understand them. So for instance, one uh, justification for the existence of moral evil, which is to be distinguished from so-called natural evil, like earthquakes and tsunamis, which are sometimes perhaps uncharitably called acts of God. Uh, in the case of moral evil, such as um, murders and thefts and rapes and these kinds of things, the Christian likes to respond by saying that the reason these things exist is because of human free will. God so values human free will that he gives us a genuine ability to choose between evil and good. And the reason for this is because the purpose of human life is to enter into a relationship, a loving relationship with God. And love, by definition, must be freely given. You cannot extract love from somebody without their consent. Otherwise, it's not love, as anybody who's seen Bruce Almighty will be familiar with. Um, if that's the case, then human beings need the ability to genuinely choose to do the right thing. They need to be able to do, choose it freely, but to choose something freely requires the ability to do the opposite. So if, you, if God needs us to be able to freely choose to do the good, it requires that it, he at least gives us the option of doing bad. And therefore, some human beings choose the bad, and that's why evil exists. Okay, sounds fairly clever. There are all kinds of questions that we need to raise with theodicies like these, and that's, that's what these are called. Attempts to reconcile the existence of evil with the existence of a loving God are called theodicies. And my favorite question to ask in response to the free will theodicy is to ask whether there'll be free will in heaven. Heaven is characterized by Christians as a place of 
um, communion with God in which there is kind of eternal bliss, everybody's living happily. And it's a little vague about what it will exactly entail, but we certainly know that there's no evil there. We certainly know that nobody's murdering, nobody's raping, nobody's stealing in heaven. The question is, is there free will in heaven? Because if there's not, then we've been turned into these kind of non-agents, these robotic creatures who have to serve God, which is the whole thing the theist was trying to avoid in the first place by saying that God so valued free will. So there probably is free will in heaven. And I think most of us would agree that if we're not free in heaven, we couldn't really realistically call it heaven. But that means we have a place in which there is free will and yet no moral evil. Okay, why can this not obtain on planet Earth? Now, as I say, there may be some practical reason that God made for this, but the claim that the Christian may have originally made, which is that you know, free will is just logically incompatible with the non-existence of evil. The reason evil exists is because free will requires it. That's a logical claim, right? They're saying that the reason that evil, the moral evil exists in the world is because of free will, implying that free will needs the ability for people to commit evil. Um, but if we can give at least one example, even if it is a superstitious example of heaven, where there's a logical compatibility between the existence of free will and yet there being no evil, that argument is undercut. And that's the question that again needs to be addressed by the religious. But a bigger problem, a much, much bigger problem, I think, for the theists in terms of the problem of evil is the problem of animal suffering. And it's a, it's a topic that I made a video about recently. I think it's my most recent video actually. And I called it Christianity's biggest problem. Um, and the reason I didn't call it religion's biggest problem is because I think other religions um, like Islam have bigger problems than the problem of animal suffering. But certainly within Christianity, uh, it's its biggest problem in my view, and it is still a problem for other religions. The problem of animal suffering is particularly difficult because of the fact that most of the theodicies proposed to reconcile evil with God simply don't apply to animals. Sure, you can have a free will theodicy, but animals aren't considered to be moral agents, right? They don't really control their actions morally in the same way. We don't morally judge a lion for eating a gazelle. We don't call it murder. Um, and if that's the case, then this free will theodicy won't apply to them. Some Christians like to say that evil exists because from it, better, more goods can emerge, right? Like we can grow intellectually. We can, we can look back upon our life and see that we've kind of gained a lot and we've kind of rationally increased our, our knowledge of the good or something of this sort. But animals by and large, non-human animals are non-rational creatures. They can't intellectually grow and develop in this way. So this theodicy doesn't apply to them. Um, theists also like to claim that evil is justified because it will be compensated for in the afterlife. But do we believe that uh, non-human animals are going to inherit eternal life in the same way that human beings are? Most monotheists will say not. So this problem needs to be addressed. And that would be the case if there were only mild suffering inflicted upon non-human animals. But it's so much worse than that because the suffering that animals go through in the wild is so incomprehensibly large in terms of its substance, but also in terms of the numbers of animals involved, that this requires some very, very serious explanation. But not only does the Christian kind of try and fail, they oftentimes don't even try because the problem of animal suffering is relegated to a footnote or a, or a, or a kind of passing paragraph, something that's not taken seriously, even though I think it should be at the very forefront of the discussion surrounding the problem of evil. How can we possibly say that a just God could preside over a world that so requires unimaginable suffering, predation, disembowelment, you know, 
venomous snakes tearing apart their prey and, and, and a zebra being killed by having its windpipe caught in the jaw of a lion and asphyxi asphyxiating to death over the course of minutes. Who on earth, who on earth could possibly say, what thinking person could say that if we assume the existence of an all loving, all powerful God, this is what we would expect to find in the natural world. Right now, it may be the case that the kinds of human suffering that people like to talk about would exist. We could expect them to exist on a Christian worldview because of the existence of free will or because of the existence of whatever, you know, insert blank. But this is made so much harder for the issue of animals because these theodicies don't even apply. And uh, yeah, I'll also state that although the theodicies do apply to human beings, I think even then they can be responded to. But in the case of animal suffering, they don't even apply in the first place. So what have we got? And again, I'll ask the same question I asked before. If we assume an atheistic worldview, what would we expect to see in the natural world? Well, we'd expect to see random mutations and evolutionary struggles, struggle for survival that relies upon suffering and fear and death to propel um, the strongest genetics forward. This is what we'd expect to see. So if we assume atheism and the thing we expect to see is exactly what we observe in the natural world, and if we, if we assume Christianity and the thing that we expect to see is absolutely nothing like what we see in the natural world, what do we conclude? At the very least, I think this means we should refuse to grant our assent, our assent to Christianity until some form of justification is forthcoming. I think that one of the reasons why, now that there's an interesting question actually, I should, I, I should say, which is if this is such a difficult problem for uh, Christianity or other monotheisms to respond to, then why don't more atheists talk about it? When was the last time you heard a clip of Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or any of my YouTube colleagues like Genetically Modified Skeptic, Rationality Rules, Holy Call It, any of these? When was the last time you heard them even mention the problem of animal suffering? Now, if you think about the amount of times that the problem of evil has come up, right? These people, um, my, my friends, my colleagues, and also these kind of classic atheists, um, their job, their career, their, their occupation is to talk about this stuff. You don't think it might have crossed their mind once? Why is it that it doesn't get a mention? Well, I think one reason for this is, is genuine ignorance of, of, of the idea. Some people probably genuinely just have never thought of it, but I think a more likely explanation might be that if we accept that animal suffering is a genuine problem that's worth addressing, it has some pretty serious implications for our own behavior because our own treatment of animals is uh, almost as bad as the treatment they receive from God Almighty on the Christian worldview. Now, to their credit, some of my atheist colleagues on YouTube recently, especially genetically modified skeptic, have made efforts towards rectifying this intellectual injustice of, of not giving this issue enough time of day. He recently made a video explaining that he no longer calls himself a humanist because he doesn't think that just humans should be at the basis of our um, worldview and our ethic. Uh, he thinks that non-human animals should be included as well. So we're beginning to see a shift in the right direction. But I think the, uh, the other thing to say, um, or, or I should say that I, I think uh, that if we consider the problem of animal suffering and we want to use it as a kind of way to point the finger against God. You say, how could you possibly call yourself a moral God and allow this extreme, horrible, terrifying animal suffering to occur? The Christian can point the finger right back at us and say, well, listen, how can you call yourself a moral person and continue to buy animal products from factory farms, which cause incalculable suffering to the same degree and call yourself a moral person? How can you possibly do that? And maybe that's one of the reasons why so many atheists have not wanted to address this problem because 
as I say, skepticism transcends religion. It transcends atheism. Skepticism is a broad approach. And when I applied skepticism to my view about the ethical treatment of animals or the ethical position of animals or the value of animals, I should say, I immediately realized that I'd been so utterly unimaginably wrong on this issue that I could be wrong about absolutely anything I believed. It was a really important lesson that I learned. And that's why I'm far more careful now with any of the beliefs that I think that I, that I kind of um, take as given, no matter how benign they may seem. Because before you care about animal suffering, even if you don't agree with me that animals are worth something, it's, it's not even seen as an issue, right? Because it's just, it's just a cheeseburger. It's just a hamburger. You know, it's just, it's just an omelet. And that's how I saw it. But now I consider it to be probably the most important ethical emergency that we're currently facing as a species and as a planet. So what that taught me is that skepticism must be applied not just to the beliefs that people think are important already, because if you think they're important already, you've probably already applied some of your questions to them. You should be doing it to even the benign aspects of your life, such as the food you eat. You know, such as the clothes you wear, the companies that you buy from, the phone that you use and the effect that that might be having on your attention span and mental health. All of these kind of seemingly day to day um, banalities need to be addressed. And I think this is a test of the true skeptic. You begin to see who starts kind of flailing about like a fish out of water when you ask them a difficult question. Watch somebody in the audience of uh, a talk being given by Sam Harris. Ask him, Sam Harris, the, the moral landscape author, the guy who thinks that all, all, all morality is reducible to pleasure and pain, watch them ask him why this doesn't apply to animals and why he isn't a vegan. And watch him go, well, you know, I think it's important that we kind of talk about this, the, the position of animals and consider in the kind of calculus of pleasure and pain and yada, 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 and never actually answers. Why might that be? Are we expected to believe that Sam Harris is really not intelligent enough to give a straight answer to the question of why he continues to pay for products that come from factory farms? Of course not. Of course not. This must be a failure of skepticism because either, either he can actually apply skepticism to this position and still say that he doesn't want to be a vegan, that he's perfectly fine eating these products, but he'd have an answer to the question. He'd be able to tell that audience member why. The fact that he was essentially unwilling to answer the question every time it's put to him implies that he either hasn't applied skepticism and wants to hide the fact that he hasn't considered the issue, but we know that he has because he's talked about veganism in the past. So the only other conclusion we can be led to is that he's applied his skepticism, realized that the questions don't have answered and then chosen to ignore them. This is the test of a skeptic. Only when it is a genuine cost, they say, a principle is truly a principle, right? A principle is only a principle when it costs you. Um, and I think that the issue of animal exploitation and animal ethics is going to be the archetypal case for future generations to look back and see who was actually really evaluating their moral course of action. Because I, I'm, I'm sorry to break it to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is incredibly easy to be an atheist. It's incredibly, it doesn't raise eyebrows in the way that it once did. It used to be the case that it was fairly radical to be an atheist, even just, you know, a matter of decades ago, certainly in places like the United States and still today in some areas in the world, but in, in the United Kingdom, to come out and say, I'm an atheist and I'm proud. Who cares? Not many people do. Now, of course, some people are in familial situations, you know, maybe it's, it's difficult for them to um, uh, 
it, it's actually genuinely difficult for them to come out as an atheist because of their family or whatever. But on a societal level, on a cultural level, being an atheist is incredibly easy. But try doing the same thing with veganism. Try doing the same thing and saying, listen, I, I really think that we should be rethinking the way that we're currently forcing pigs into gas chamber because we're addicted to the taste of their flesh. I hate the fact that we're currently separating calves from their mothers because we're addicted to their flesh and secretions. Um, watch the reaction. All right, and people like to say, you know, um, well, I agree with the message. I'm still a skeptic because I, you know, I understand the questions. They're worth asking. I just don't like the methods you're using. I, I just don't like that you're always talking about it. I don't like that you always bring it up, that you're trying to force it on people. Firstly, I'm, this, this caricature of vegans trying to force their views on people. Where are these roaming gangs of vigilante vegans trying to force people into eating a tofu burger? They don't exist. Nobody could force you to do this if they tried. What we can force you to do is to consider the consequences of your action. Now, I'll put it bluntly, if you have the right to force a pig into a gas chamber, I have the right to force you into a conversation about your justification for doing so. I'm always glad when somebody says that they don't like opinions being forced on them because I just beg that they apply the exact same logic and stop forcing their opinions on the animals that they pay to be slaughtered and tortured. It's a very simple prospect to me, but if you bring this up, the reaction that you receive is telling, right? And they say that they don't like the method, but they agree with the message. However, when it comes to an issue that they agree with, when they're talking about something that's obviously correct, you know, when they're talking about um, justice, but not between species, but between the sexes or racial justice or issues about dog fighting or, uh, or the fur trade or whatever it may be, things that they actually think are worth addressing, all of a sudden they've given themselves the license to be as loud, as pushy, as forceful as they like, constantly posting things on social media, never letting anybody get up, Saying, telling people they need to be having these conversations with their families, even if they're uncomfortable, it's so important. And I'm sitting here thinking, hold on, five minutes ago, you were telling me that I shouldn't be doing this, not because of anything about the message itself, but just because you didn't think the method worked. You lied to me, or you've changed your mind in the case of five minutes. And I'm pretty sure I know which one it is. So the point, the takeaways are to say skepticism Transcends atheism. They're not synonyms. They're not the same thing. Skepticism doesn't necessarily lead to atheism because you can be a skeptical Christian as long as you've actually asked the relevant questions and have answers to them. Um, and also, it's worth reevaluating not just those beliefs that you hold most dear, but also those beliefs that you think might just be banalities because you never know where important moral qualms may be lurking in the dark. With that said, I think I've been talking for about half an hour, and I think that means, well, I, I, we started a bit late. We've got about half an hour left as, as, as far as I know. And so I wanted to make sure I had an opportunity to answer questions, but I don't know if there have been any slash how many there will be. So I'm happy to take any now, um, but if that doesn't fill the time, I'm happy to just keep rambling too. But thank you all for listening. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear any questions that any of you might want to submit. Uh, we do have questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. It was brilliant. Uh, really great to hear. I always find great how you uh, can always talk about these issues in a very, you know, it's not overly seriously. Uh, you always find a way to put some humor into it. And I, I really like that. Um, we uh, also, I'd like to say, so, um, it's really nice to talk to you directly after uh, watching uh, many of your videos. Uh, and we have someone in this society, I hope uh, they don't mind I say this, but they are religious. And they say that every time they watch a video of yours about religion, uh, they hate it because they spent a week 
questioning themselves and their faith. Um, so yeah, I, I think that yeah, that's shows lovely. It's, it's very complimentary. <laughs> it's very complimentary. I mean, I, I have many Christian friends and colleagues who make videos that keep me up at night, and it's it's <laughs> I, I know I know what it's like to to hear a particular argument and think and, and have to genuinely give it the, the, the time of day. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a great compliment that that somebody takes mm -hmm. that from my videos too. Uh, I I just wanted to ask you because the the last argument you mentioned was. Uh, the one on animal suffering and as you said you made a video about uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about uh, animal suffering and William Lane Craig's response to this now we're going to have William Lane Craig on next week uh, and we just wanted to ask you is there anything you'd like us or you'd recommend us to ask him hmm. I would I, I, I think it would be perhaps a good idea to ask him if he still holds to the positions on animal suffering specifically. The video I responded to was from a debate that was, I think, decades old at this point. It was uh, not, not really long ago, but, but long enough ago that he could very well have changed his mind on some issues. One of the most outrageous claims that he made, in my view, was that animals, non-human animals, are capable of being in pain, but they're not aware that they're in pain, which to me is nonsensical. I don't think you can be in pain without being aware of it because pain is experienced by definition. I would love to see him asked whether he still holds to that. That's not the same thing as asking him to justify that position. I think the more interesting question is, you know, given the evolution that we've had on, on the issue of, of uh, animal ethics and given the advancements in um, our understanding of neurology, whether he uh, still holds that position. But I'm, I'm also hopefully planning to get him back on the channel at some point. I, I was thinking of reaching out and asking him to see if he'd want to discuss this issue. But, you know, it's not his wheelhouse. So he may also just say, listen, I, I don't have an answer to this. Um, but I'd be very interested to, to hear what he has to say. William Lane Craig, d d you know, despite the, the fierceness with which I kind of um, try to respond to his arguments, I, I have nothing but respect for him. He, he's a wonderful thinker, a very clear writer, and a persuasive um, conversationalist. So I think you'll have a wonderful experience with him. Yes, we're, we're really looking forward to, to having him on uh, next week. So hopefully that'll be a good discussion. Um, so we've got a question coming. How would you argue that kind of um, rhetoric with a fisherman slash farmer? Speaking as a biologist who's worked in the agricultural domain, you'd be hard pushed to find individuals that don't treat their animals with respect. Taking it one step further, knowing people who hunt, they very much respect the animal. Isn't the argument one that factory or inhumane farming of animal flesh is beneath us? Yeah, well, there are, there are two arguments to pry apart here. There's the argument against factory farming, which nobody even bothers trying to respond to. It's so ethically obvious that factory farming needs to come to an end immediately, not just for the sake of the animals, but also for our own sake, right? Because it's not just the fact that we're torturing animals in factory farms. Uh, factory farms are also propelling antibiotic resistance since the majority of antibiotics that are sold uh, are used on livestock rather than being used on human beings. It's also posing a fantastic risk um, to the arising of future pandemics. Think of all of the famous zoonotic diseases. Um, th th well, think of all of the famous viruses, I should say, like uh, Ebola, and SARS and MERS and COVID, of course, all of these are zoonotic viruses. They come from animals. Now, we don't claim that these things came from factory farming, although some of them did, but we are pretty confident that the next one might be factory farming. While our governments are telling us to keep as far apart from each other as possible to prevent viral transmission, we're simultaneously cram cramming billions, 
of animals into excruciatingly close proximity to share their viruses with each other and then claiming that we're doing everything we can to prevent future pandemics. Give me a break. It's not true. I used to think that people who refused to stop buying factory farmed products, um, it was essentially a kind of version of selfishness. It was just that, you know, they wanted to continue eating these products and they were too selfish to give them up. But it's not just selfishness because it turns out that when it's in our own best interest as human beings to stop factory farming animals, we're still not willing to, to quit it. Um, but the questioner seems not to disagree with this, that factory farming is an abomination with a capital A. Uh, the question is, what about other methods of farming? What about the nice farmer? What about the hunter who has respect for their animal? Well, there are a few things to say. The first is that it's easy to be under the illusion that you are doing something respectful when you are not. If you shoot an animal in the lung unnecessarily and cause it to die for the sake of wanting to eat it or for the sake of sport or something, I don't think it's sensible to say that you're doing that out of respect. It may be true that there are instances in which hunting is actually good for an animal. For instance, in uh, situations of ecological preservation and overpopulation. I would say, however, that there are other methods available. There are other methods that we can use other than shooting these animals in the lung. Um, but we can at least kind of envision a situation in which maybe it would be permissible to do so. So why is it then? Like, can, can we really suggest that, you know, even, even, even a small minority of hunters got into hunting purely because of the ecological effect? Is that really why they're doing it? I'm sure it may, may be true of some, but we have to ask of the individual hunter, can we honestly say that that's what they're doing? Is that their motive, right? Because a lot of the time, what it is, is hunters will start by uh, killing animals, using them for food, or something of that sort. And then when pressed, they say, oh, but don't worry, because this is actually having these great effects on the ecology of, of, the, of, of the area in which I hunt. It's actually doing really great things for overpopulation. It's really balancing out the ecosystem, this kind of stuff. But if that wasn't the primary concern, then there's a problem here, because if it turned out that those things weren't true, they still would have gone out and hunted in the first place. The fact that it's doing good for the environment is just kind of a icing on the cake for them. I can only take seriously someone who's saying they're doing it out of respect if that was their principal concern, if they're going out and killing animals for the sake of ecosystem stability. And if they were, then things would look very different. For a start, you wouldn't get these images of hunters standing by their prey, holding their guns. I mean, I've never seen a hunter posing for a photo next to a re recycling bin talking about how much they care about the environment. It just doesn't happen. We need to stop fooling ourselves. We also then need to ask the question of whether or not this is actually the best and most respectful way to bring about ecosystem stability. My friend and colleague, Earthling Ed, Ed Winters, has a wonderful video responding to Joe Rogan on exactly this point. Joe Rogan saying that hunters are actually helping the ecosystem. They have much respect for their animals. That's the reason they're doing it. And he addresses those points far more eloquently and um, thoroughly than I could ever hope to. So I would, I, I would have to kind of advise that the questioner watch that video. Um, on the instance of kind of farmers who are nice to their animals, what does it mean, right? What does it mean to be nice and respectful to an animal? I think I understand what the questioner means, right? It's like you've kind of got your cow who you treat as a pet. You're very nice to them. But here's the thing. If you're running a business that serves milk, you cannot just sit around and wait until that cow wants to have a child and hope that there's some milk left over, 
right? If you're running a business selling milk, you have to forcibly impregnate that cow. You have to take the milk away from the calf. And you probably have, if because the dairy industry is essentially tied up with the meat industry, you will end up selling that cow to a slaughterhouse, right? Is it respectful? Is it respectful? Is there a respectful way to unnecessarily forcibly impregnate a cow, separate them from their wailing children, uh, potentially bolt gun that child in the head, a calf, I should say, is so as not to anthropomorphize, bolt gun that calf in the head to produce veal for human beings to eat and then sell that mother cow to a slaughterhouse? I don't think this is particularly respectful behavior. I would ask for people who think that it is, if you have a pet, if you've got a pet dog, Imagine you had to have that pet put down. It's got a terminal illness and the vet says you need to get it put down. How would you feel about it being done at a slaughterhouse? That tells us everything we need to know about slaughterhouses, right? These aren't places of, you know, um, essential, essentially animal sacrifice. You know, you have these old... Um, almost like biblical visions of people who would raise an animal and then there'd be the solemn affair in which they'd sacrifice the animal and give thanks to God at how grateful they are for, the, for what the animals provided. At least in those kinds of circumstances, you can kind of imagine people being very upset, seeing it as a very solemn, serious affair and giving great thanks to the fact that this animal has provided them food. That is nowhere near, nowhere near the process of kind of going into a shop and, and, and buying some meat and just making sure it's got the little icon that says it came from a local farm. That's not what's going on, right? Until you find me that farmer, I think I just have to reject the implication of the question. If the question is more, well, let's say that there were such a farm, let's say that there were such a farm that was able to kind of produce animal products in a way that didn't cause harm to animals. Um, I, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not sure that this even makes much sense for the reasons that I've discussed. But my position on this is that the reason why it's wrong to eat animal products is because it causes unnecessary suffering to animals. So if there is a form of farming that doesn't cause unnecessary suffering to animals, then I think it would be perfectly vegan to uh, to grant our assent to it. Um, it's all about suffering. So what you have to do is you have to ask. Sure, maybe this farmer is being as respectful as they can be, given the fact that they have to kill this animal and, you know, um, take its uh, take its products. The question is, is that is that the most respectful way to treat the animal full stop? I think that the most humane and respectful way to kill an animal is to not kill that animal. And as long as that option is available to us, I don't think we can meaningfully say that these people are treating their animals with the best respect that they could. Uh, we have a question on the continuation of that, which is very interesting for me because I'm, I'm a, a neuroscience student um, and uh, Alistair asks, he's also a biology student, and he asks, with regards to veganism, what is your opinion on the use of animal models for scientific research? And he means stuff like cancer research and, and neuroscience research as well, and not animal testing for products. I think that if we are, it's obviously a more difficult question than the issue of animals being used for food. Um, and a lot of vegans think that they can just be answered in the same way. And I don't think they can, because the whole strength of the vegan argument for food is that we're causing this unimaginable suffering for something as trivial as sensory pleasure, just our taste buds. Whereas in this case, we're talking about causing suffering to animals for the sake of something far less trivial, which is medical research. I think that, um, we, we live in a time of practical constraint. What I mean by that is that I think we should be aiming to move towards a world in which we do not test on animals um, 
Perhaps there may be some emergency situations in the, the kind of classic consequentialist disaster scenarios where we say, look, you're not allowed to kill a human being. Uh, but if you're in a situation where if you don't kill this human being, the rest of the entire world is going to explode, maybe we'd permit it, right? So I think we should move towards a world where we are not, at least certainly not reliant on animal testing in the way that we currently are. Um, and hopefully that we don't use it unless there's some kind of genuine emergency. And even then we might have some uh, pause for thought. The problem is that, like, I, I don't think I can meaningfully advocate for this. And the reason for that is that until we have solved the problem of animal exploitation on the most obvious level, we can't really move to the more nuanced level, right? Because it wouldn't make much sense for me to try and convince people that we should be not, that we should refuse to test on animals, even for the sake of cancer research, because they can turn around and say, well, look, I mean, we forced pigs into gas chamber for the sake of a bacon sandwich. You're telling me I can't harm an animal to, you know, save my family from cancer. It would sound ridiculous, right? So until we are on board uh, and we live in a world that's normalized the idea that animals are not things with which we can do as we please, but beings with whom we share the planet, then we can have a more meaningful conversation. Um, and there are some ethical theories which say that you're perfectly justified in essentially using living beings, including human beings, as ends. Utilitarianism is an example of one such philosophy that says that human you know, value is, is, is just linked to pleasure and nothing else, which means that you can in at least some circumstances, use human beings in such a way as to maximize the overall pleasure. And we can just apply the same logic to animals. I think that as long as we're being consistent in our ethical principles, that's the most important thing. So as long as you'd be okay with testing in the same way upon a human being who had relevantly similar characteristics to the animals that we're currently testing on, you're fine. But if you had a human being who had the same characteristics as the animals you're testing on, that is the same level of intelligence, the same level of self-awareness, the same capacity for pain, all of this kind of stuff, and you think it would be wrong to test on that severely disabled human, you're in trouble, right? And I think that anybody who suggests that we can justify medical testing on the disabled is in ethically tricky water to say the least. But if we want to say that the reason we're allowed to test on animals, the reason we justify testing on animals for medical research is because they're less intelligent, they're less aware, all of these kinds of things, then we need to say the same thing about human beings who share the same characteristics. And I think most people would not want to be able to do so. For that reason, I think I'm committed to wanting a world in which animal testing does not exist. But we are, of course, confined by the practical limitations of our time. And until we live in a world where uh, care for animals is actually normalized, that's not going to be possible. Bear in mind that the development of vaccines came about because now I, my, my memory on this is hazy, but I've seen a presentation or two uh, on the original inventor of vaccines, testing vaccines on children. Um, I think his own children, I would hope his own children and just sticking in the needle and seeing what happened. Now, of course, it turned out quite well for us because they worked and now we have a wonderful, great medical advance. And we can recognize that were it not for that human testing, we may not have vaccines or at least not as quickly as we did, but that doesn't mean that we can justify testing on humans, right? It's equally true that if we allowed testing on humans, we would it would solve so many of our problems. Medical research would just explode if we allowed ourselves to test upon human beings. The very thing, one of the biggest things that holds us back from uh, medical progress is the fact that we don't allow people to test on humans um, in ways that will cause them suffering without their consent. But that's because we hold that ethical principle to such a high standard that we would call it a right. And a right by nature is inviolable. 
It means it doesn't matter what the consequence is. You cannot take that person and, you know, um, pour glue into their eye and see what happens. You're not allowed to do it because it's a violation of their rights. And if we're to say that animals have rights, then I think we have to be consistent with them too. So I'm not going to be out in the street tomorrow trying to shut down animal testing for cancer research, but I think we should be trying as hard as we can to move towards a world in which it's no longer relied upon and hopefully no longer necessary. Thank you very much for, for that, Alex. Um, our next question is coming from someone who is mostly plant-based and is fully supportive um, of vegans and their, um, what they're trying to achieve and being more ethical. Um, but the question is, how far should we go to be ethical? Um, they say that, or this, the questioner believes that we should be as ethical as we can, but we need to understand that there's perhaps a limit. If we don't recognise that there is a potential limit, um, will we continue worrying about what we could do better every minute of every day? So the example they give is, should you be using a mobile phone because of where um, the materials come from? Um, yes, there, there's potentially endless or limitless um, considerations to be more ethical in life. That's quite right. I, I'd, uh, this is uh, often called the demandingness objection um, to certain ethical theories. If they seem to demand too much of a person, should that give us good reason to reject them? Um, most, time, most of the time, the advocate of the ethical theory will say no. I mean, just because something's super demanding doesn't mean it's untrue. Like, what if it is just true that, you know, we, we should be kind of pauperizing ourselves and selling all of our possessions and giving it all to charity? You know, the fact that that's really demanding doesn't change its truth. Um, but others will like to say that our intuition is so strong that we can't meaningfully ask that of a person, that we can't say this ethical theory is accurate. In my view, I don't know where that line may be drawn. I think, for instance, if we have as obvious a link between uh, buying a phone from Apple uh, causing some form of um, intrinsic human suffering that there is between buying bacon and causing a pig suffering, then yeah, don't buy the phone. But, but I, I think it's easier than people think to live an ethical life in this respect. If you are made aware of the fact that by buying this particular phone, you're going to cause suffering in a way that if you buy this other phone, you will not buy the other phone. I think it's as simple as that. Same thing with clothing. If you have the opportunity to buy clothing secondhand, which is better for the environment and isn't, um, you know, using fast fashion, which is reliant upon not only the kind of the, the usual typical um, essential slave labor that a lot of people like to criticize them for, but also now uh, at least allegedly um, slave labor from uh, Chinese Uyghur Muslim camps. If you can avoid that, do it. And in fact, what do I mean if you can avoid it? You can avoid it, so do it, right? That's kind of what ethics demands. The demandingness becomes a problem when we start talking about um, preventing suffering rather than not causing it. So in the case of buying animal products, in the case of buying a, a product which requires some form of suffering, you are causing that suffering. At least you're economically demanding that it continue, right? And that's different from refusing to give to charity. If you refuse to give to charity, and you spend that money on some shoes, uh, uh, someone may still die as a result of you buying shoes, but not, it's not that you've paid for them to die, right? You haven't caused them to die. You have neglected to prevent them from dying by buying those shoes. That's different from buying shoes, which by virtue of buying those shoes, you know, someone has to make them and it causes some kind of unimaginable suffering or whatever it may be. These are different situations. Uh, the distinction between doing something and allowing it to happen. One way to prove, I think, that there is a difference between these situations is to imagine that you're an ambulance driver and you have two patients in the back who need to go to hospital immediately. You don't have time to stop. 
You look out of your window and you see that a boulder is rolling towards an innocent person. You can stop the ambulance, get out of the ambulance and push the boulder out of the way and save that one person, but the two in the back will die. Most people would say that they should continue driving. At the very least, it's permissible to continue driving, right? Like you should probably, if you're driving that ambulance, unlucky for him, I guess, that he's going to get rolled over by the boulder, but you can't stop and save him um, and, you know, essentially allow the two in the back to die. But now imagine the same situation. You're driving in the ambulance, two people in the back, and there's a boulder in your way. And the only way to get to the hospital in time is to drive into the boulder and push it onto an innocent man who it crushes and kills. Are you justified in doing so? Most people would say no. What's the difference between these situations? Why is it different? Why is it that I'm allowed to refuse to prevent this man's death to save these two people, but I'm not allowed to cause this man's death. The only difference is that in one case, I'm causing it to happen. In the other case, I'm allowing it to happen. And I think this is where the, distinct, the distinction is, is, is gonna be instructive here. I think in cases where you can avoid causing suffering, you are almost unanimously, or excuse me, you are almost universally uh, obligated to do so. If you can cause suffering or not cause suffering, don't cause suffering. However, in instances where it's you can prevent suffering or not prevent suffering, I think in most cases, it's still a good idea. It's at the very least virtuous to try and prevent suffering, but it's not always an obligation in the same way. So the most difficult cases, you know, people like to ask, you know, if we're, if we're here to reduce suffering, does that mean that I need to, for instance, I've got a bunch of books behind me. I don't need these books. I like these books. Some of them are signed. They're probably worth quite a lot of money. Um, I've also got my bus to Christopher Hitchens, which could probably fetch a fair few dollars on eBay. I'm not entirely sure. Now I could sell all these products and give the money to um, the Against Malaria Foundation and buy some malaria nets, which may actually save someone's life. Now, can I possibly say that these books are more important than that person's life? Well, no, of course not. But does that mean that I have to sell these books? Oh, maybe. Okay, so I sell the books. But look, I don't really need this map poster either. I don't really need these clothes. I, you know, I don't need to shave my face because the cost of a razor could be spent on a malaria net, right? And what you end up with is a situation in which it's like, how far can you take this? You end up selling your house, downsizing your house, selling your car and using the bike giving up every single non-essential possession. That means never going, to the, ne never going to the cinema, never eating out at a restaurant, never doing any of these things because that money could be spent on something more important. And the objection is, look, this is far too demanding. Where do we draw the line? Well, I think the difference in this case is that when I refuse to sell these books, I allow someone to die, essentially. And that's something we have to own and accept. Every time I buy a book, I allow someone to die, or at least uh, contribute towards allowing someone to die because that money could contribute towards saving their life. Right. And I think we do have an ethical obligation to donate a significant amount of our money to ethical causes. Um, however, I don't think we can say that in every individual instance, we have an obligation to give our money in that instance. I've got a video about this coming out very soon. Um, my next video, in fact, I answer this question more directly. Anyway, what I'm trying to say, because I'm kind of going off on a tangent, is that in instances where you are literally the cause, the the, the, the reason why the suffering is, is happening in a causal sense, I think you have an obligation to avoid it wherever you can. But if you have an opportunity to prevent suffering, it's still virtuous to do so and sometimes obligatory, but it's not always obligatory in the same way. I don't know where that line is exactly drawn, but I do know that veganism, that is refusing to pay for animals to be killed and in the case of factory farm products, tortured and abused, definitely falls within the first category, no doubt about it. So if this is a genuine question, 
That is to say, if you're genuinely just asking, where is this moral line dra drawn? I'm afraid I don't know. That's one of the uh, kind of big mysteries of ethical philosophy. But if it's supposed to be framed as an objection, that is, well, you know, listen here, vegan, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accusing the questioner of doing this, but some people like to, they say, well, you know, Mr. Vegan, if you're so ethical, why don't you sell all your possessions? Well, I, I don't think that flies as an objection. I, I think that even though we don't know the answer to where the line is drawn, it's very obvious that we still shouldn't be paying for, hum for pigs to be put into gas chambers. I mean, imagine if somebody said the same thing about putting human beings in gas chambers. If, if, if I were like, look, you really shouldn't be doing this. You really shouldn't be killing innocent human beings. And they turned around and said, ah, well, where do you draw the line? Hmm? Are you going to sell all of your possessions? Come on, it would be, it'd be absolutely absurd. So as a question, I'm afraid I don't have a straight answer, but as an objection, I don't think it works. Uh, thank you very much for that. We're unfortunately, uh, uh, unfortunately running out of time. Uh, we've had a lot of questions, but I'd, uh, I'd just like to uh, bring the conversation back to skepticism. Uh, and the question is, uh, where does skepticism draw the line? Um, and this is, this is an example about science. Isn't the most rational approach available uh, to be skeptic about every single bit of science until you've demonstrated it yourself or seen it demonstrated? And then there's a follow-up question as well, which is people of the general public generally believe in science blindly without ever reading a paper or trying to demonstrate scientific facts themselves. Isn't this as much of a faith as religious faith? I should perhaps take these in reverse. Um, on, the, on the second question, I think it's perfectly permissible sometimes to appeal to authority as long as you're not doing so to actually buttress an argument that you're making. That is to say, uh, I believe in man-made climate change but I'm not a climatologist and I wouldn't be able to de defend that position. So I wouldn't come out and give a talk on the matter. So if somebody asks me, come on, you know, like, are you being skeptical about this? The answer is like, yes, I can't, I can't be sure that I'm right to the extent that I would actually advocate it in public. When I'm talking about skepticism, I'm really talking about um, being skeptical of those things that you kind of, that, that, that you, that you say and do in the world that have real world effects. It's not quite the same as just kind of what you think, because what I think about global warming isn't really going to have any kind of practical effect. Um, except maybe in kind of the terms of like influence in what I say or something like that. But um, yeah, I, I think that in my position, I'm entitled to say, well, I don't know. So I'm going to trust the opinions of the experts. But that only suffices as a reason why I believe in climate change. That doesn't suffice as a reason for me to convince you to believe in climate change. Right? If we were trying to have an argument about it, and my argument was just to say, well, look, this is what the experts say, but I don't really understand what they said. You would quite rightly say that I'm not being skeptical, that I'm not being appropriate, that I'm, I'm kind of using blind faith or something of this sort. Um, but I think that kind of on a personal level, this should be done. Um, I don't think it's quite the same thing as faith. That is to say, uh, scientific consensus, I think, is a fairly reliable grasp of, of truth. Um, although we must bear in mind that it isn't always. We have to bear in mind that, that like science is and should be at least humble by nature. It says, these are our best explanations. These are our best hypotheses. Evolutionary biology by natural selection is our best explanation of the uh, origin of life on earth. It may be that it's completely wrong, but this is the best we've got, uh, the, the, the best that we've got so far. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's, I suppose there is a, there's an element of, of, of faith in the process. Like you have to have, um, a so-called faith in certain base uh, principles of science, such as empiricism, the existence of the external world, these kind of things. But as long as you're not claiming that like 
that you you know that science has all the answers now and you know that they're never going to be overturned and they're definitely true um then yeah you're, you're, you're being dogmatic you're being faithful but this is this is the behavior of the religious in my view they don't just say listen this is the best explanation that i can find a lot of the time they say this is the truth this is it this is the answer we know and we don't need any more analysis um so it depends on it depends on what you're talking about. Like there are some Christians who believe in Christianity due to the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, right? Now that person I don't think is really relying on much faith, right? I think that person has made an empirical analysis of historical facts and concluded that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He and I will have a lot in common, right? We'll we'll both be people who value empiricism, who value the scientific method, and who who value kind of proper appropriate historical study. Um, equally the person who says well look i just believe in god because that's what i'm supposed to do and the person who says well look i just believe in evolution because that's what i'm supposed to do they have a lot of they have a lot in common i have more in common with the resurrectionist christian than i do with the dogmatic um evolutionist as it were um the the real problem here is dogma right the, the real problem is asserting beliefs that cannot be uh questioned or shouldn't be questioned or um, are said to be correct no matter what. That's the real problem here. And, and the question is quite right that that can come from the, the believer in science and the believer in religion. But that's why I say that skepticism transcends religion. It transcends atheism. Um, you can be a perfectly dogmatic atheist, as I believe many atheists are. And as I say, when you ask them about animal rights, it can be quite revealing of this, that they resort to the same kind of dogmatism that, yeah, well, we've got canines and that's the end of it. You know, like, it, it can exist in 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 all of the in, in all of the fields of of human inquiry. Um, I'm not sure if I've like precisely answered the question there because I, I've forgotten its exact wording, um, and I've also forgotten the first part of the question. If if you could uh, if you could help me. No, I think I think it's perfectly all right. Um, it's it, we, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll just pass it on to to Matthew to ask the last question which we always like to ask about okay well, well i'm sorry so the question you know, I, i've forgotten the, the first part and I, I remember it being quite a no it's it's uh, you, i your answer was absolutely all right and i think it really answered the question okay well i'll i'll trust i'll trust you on that but if the if the questioner feels otherwise they can feel free to email me and and i'll uh, try and get around to it okay thank you for that alex um so we we are the um free speech society um, free speech is what we um, what we stand for here on our, our campus. Um, so this last question we asked to all of our speakers, um, and it's simply, why is free speech important to you? Well, um, because it, it's not so much that I care about a person's ability to speak, it's more that I care about a person's ability to listen. Speaking doesn't really do that much um it has some kind of some benefits like if i hold a belief my verbalizing it can be therapeutic it can be cathartic it can be um engendering of community spirit in these kinds of things but that's not what we care about in this kind of war against free speech as people like to dramatically frame it um we don't care about someone's right to speak we have we care about someone's right to listen and that's what's trying to be taken away right when if somebody is against um, allowing somebody to say a particular thing. It's not really that they that they don't want them to say it. It's that they don't want other people to hear it because they think it'd be too dangerous, too offensive, too harmful. I would say that if anybody tries to tell you, don't worry, we know how sensitive you are, and we're not going to allow you to listen to this thing because we don't think you'll be able to hack it. That you should feel so patronized 
as to truly give them a piece of their mind and demonstrate free speech right in front of them. Uh, free, there's nothing we can really say about the, the value of free speech that doesn't verge on the cliche. You know, it allows us to address various ideas and try to move towards the truth. So one thing I would say is let's not be any un, <laughs> under any illusions. A lot of free speech a a advocates like to be uh, utopian about this. They, they, they seem to be kind of saying that if we allow free speech, disinformation will disappear. The truth will always prevail. We'll never have dictatorship or totalitarianism ever again. That's not the case. That's not true. These things will always, these things are perennial. They're not going away, but we can be sure that although allowing a free market of ideas isn't necessarily going to prevent these things, restricting the free market of ideas is going to make them more likely. What is the first thing that a totalitarian dictator will do when trying to take control of a state? They will limit the freedom of the, of the press. They will limit the freedom of, of criticism of the state. The spe speech is the most important thing because speech is an extension of thought and that's how we should be treating it. Speech is an extension of thought and listening is one of the best forms in which uh, thoughts can be uh, received. Uh, it's the same thing. It's not just about speech. It's also about writing, right? It's like, it's not just people saying things, it's about them writing things. So the, the terminology is confused, in other words. We don't care about someone's right to speak. We care about their right to express an idea. And we care about other people's rights to hear those ideas. And I think if you need to ask the question of why it should be um, not only dysfunctional, but also offensive to tell someone that they are not allowed to listen to a particular opinion. I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think that question even needs to be asked. I think it should be crystally obvious, but I should also recognize that the anti-free speech person, so to speak, isn't just saying that people like to caricature them. They like to say, oh, you're just trying to, you're just trying to censor people you don't agree with. That, that's not what they're doing, right? It, it, yeah, they disagree with them, but they're not, they're, they're not trying to justify silencing people on the grounds of disagreement alone. They're trying to silence them on the grounds that what they're saying that they disagree with is dangerous or harmful. The question we have to ask is what is more dangerous and harmful? The thing that's being said or the process of trying to prevent it from being said? And to me, the answer is obvious. That was, that was a great way to conclude that. Um, we'd like to thank you, Alex, for, for coming along, for accepting our invitation. Uh, invitation. It's been an absolute pleasure. We do apologize for running slightly over time. We don't like to do that because we know uh, uh, our speaker's time is very important. Uh, but so we do apologize. Oh, no, um, I, think, I think that might have been my fault. I think I, I have a tendency to um, ramble, uh, but <laughs> I, I was enjoying myself. So, you know, it, it, it worked out for me. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for hosting this. This was fun. And thank you to everyone who submitted a question. I'm sorry we didn't get time to answer everybody, um, but I'm sure there'll be more opportunities in the future. Um, but thanks for being here anyway. And thanks for listening. And, and yeah, thank you guys for hosting. Thank you. Uh, we'd also like to thank the audience and as Alex said, everyone that submitted questions. We do apologize for not getting to every single question, but our time is limited. Um, and we'd also like to remind you that next week we're going to have uh, William Lane Craig, um, so you can uh, check the event out and get your tickets on our Facebook page. Uh, and we also have a fundraiser going because it turns out um, Zoom webinars is quite expensive. Um, so we have that thing as well. So you can go to our Facebook to find the details for that. Uh, and just to end, I always like to finish with a quote. Uh, and the quote I have today is from a book I recently acquired called Free Speech and White Matters 
by the Irish comedian Andrew Doyle. Um, and he says that uh, the price we pay for a free society is that bad people will say bad things. We tolerate this not because we approve of the content of their speech, but because, because once we have compromised on the principle of free speech, we clear the pathway for future tyranny. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a great idea to finish on. Uh, and I'd like to wish you all a very good night. Thank you very much.